41. <clears throat> John chapter 9, uh, verses 13 through 41. Uh, we're going to be taking a particular um, look at the Pharisees, that is the religious elite, in this passage. John chapter 8, I'm sorry, John chapter 9, verses 13 through the rest of the chapter. This is the word of God. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, ask him, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and would you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do, do not see may see, and those who see may become blind some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no hurt like church hurt. And there's no abuse like spiritual abuse when the ones who are responsible for the care of God's people, they are the ones who themselves are the very cause of their pain and suffering, God has a particular disdain for them and a contempt for them that seethes with burning anger. 
and no one would want to be them on the day of judgment. The Bible threatens a severe and unique punishment upon them in particular because not only are they commandeering the means and the mechanisms by which the bride of Christ is to be protected and turning them upon her, but they also make the bride of Christ to be a spectacle to the world. They make her into something of a subject of ridicule. They make her out to be the subject of vitriol, of scorn, uh, of mockery. Uh, They besmirch the name of Jesus by abusing his bride. The church is really the one institution that the world has that should be the most caring by far. It should be the most compassionate. The church is the one institution in this age that should be the most generous, it should be the most fair, it should be the most just, and it should be the most Christ-honoring. And when the church, through its leadership, doesn't live up to the standards that it has that is found in the Bible... It hurts everyone, and really nobody wins in this age or in the age to come. James chapter 3, verse 1 warns us, saying that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, whatever strictness is meant here, it's there for good reasons. God is offended through the misuse of his means, and the people of God are taken advantage of and abused, And the people who do the abusing are allowed to take advantage of the people of God. Uh, Now, to be sure, there are those who are getting away with it, who we don't know about publicly. There are those who have gotten away with it for some time who are no longer getting away with it, and most likely you've seen those stories uh, in the news, I'm sure. But the Christian knows for certain that no one really gets away with that. No one uh, is able, actually, to get away with it. No abuse can escape the eye of the one who sees all things. And it doesn't notice, it doesn't escape our very notice here in this story. We're coming to this passage for the last time tonight. Uh, We've done a study, uh, number one, uh, about the miracle or the sign of Jesus healing the man. Uh, We've also done a study of the entire passage in the light of this miracle. We've studied how this man is himself something of a microcosm of the entire Christian experience. And tonight we're going to be looking, uh, we're going to be turning our attention now, not upon the man, but upon the Pharisees in this chapter, uh, mainly because this is the most sustained dialogue from the Pharisees to someone else other than Jesus in the Gospel of John. And because of this, because they aren't speaking directly to Jesus, we can learn something about them in what we can call their natural habitat. Uh, We see them as they're speaking and treating just a a, a regular person. And even though this regular person, in, in their eyes, he's been tampered with by being healed by Jesus, still, whatever it is that John the Apostle intends to communicate about these, uh, these people, about the religious elite, I think is gathered most fully in this chapter in terms of how they treat this man here. And so we'll be considering the wolves in the sheep pen from this chapter with this basic theme that the statements of the Pharisees prove them to be the blind ones who abuse others 
to maintain their control. And really, they could be described in four ways, perhaps a lot more from this chapter. Uh, But as we let the words leap off the pages right upon our minds and into our hearts, they could be described in these four ways that, number one, they're legalistic, number two, they're threatening, number three, they're presumptuous, and number four, they're self-righteous. And so to start our um, study this evening with the first description of the Pharisees that they're legalistic, we come to verse 13 where we started and we're first introduced to them in this context. The man had just been healed and it marked such a profound change in this guy's life that the entire crowd evidently needed verification of this miracle. Now, doubtless, uh, they're doing this because of biblical precedent. Uh, doubtless, they're gathering their need to do this from passages like Leviticus 13 and 14, where a priest was supposed to uh, verify whether or not leprosy was found in someone or something. And so they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. And as we've come to know in other sermons, the next verse signals their legalism to the reader, stating what they would be interested most keenly. Not what happened, but when it happened. Verse 14 Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. The subtext of this being, of course, that this detail, uh, both everybody in uh, in this story here and the original reader knew that this is the thing, this is the detail that's going to preoccupy their thoughts, that is, the thoughts of the religious elite. They're a lot more interested in this healing being on the Sabbath day than there were that the miracle itself even happened. And as we've come to know, Jesus making the mud and healing of this man are two of uh, of possibly the three actions uh, that told these religious elite that the Sabbath had been broken. And it comes from a legalistic idea that they harbor about what constitutes breaking the Sabbath to begin with. According to rabbinic literature in this time, and then uh, fast-forwarding a couple hundred years after this, uh, this time, you couldn't transport something that was heavier than a dried fig on the Sabbath, and you couldn't transport more milk than would fill one mouth at one time because that was considered bearing a burden on the Sabbath day. To them, a violation of the Sabbath was to walk more than 1,000 paces outside of Jerusalem. Now, You can walk as long as you want, as many paces as you want inside of Jerusalem, but for some reason it's outside of Jerusalem. You only have a limit of a thousand paces, and that's it. In fact, in in modern day Israel, uh, if you ever go visit Israel, you'll notice that whatever hotel that you're staying at on Saturdays, the elevators uh, will stop at each and every single floor going up and going down, So pray that you don't stay in a hotel that's like 15 stories high or anything like uh, like that. But it will stop at every single floor going up and going down because it is considered work to press the button on the elevator. It's also not uncommon to see cars pulling over um, on Friday nights towards sundown because it's considered work to drive on the Sabbath. Now, what do they do? How do they get home? Well, they hire a taxi and make someone else work on on the Sabbath. You see how they get around this. And I can go on and on and on to show you a lot more more info, but you get the point. 
legalism is taking a biblical command and demanding obedience to an extra-biblical mandate that overlays that command from the Bible, and then they tether your obedience to that extra-biblical mandate to your Christian experience. Legalism is an allegiance to a command that goes beyond what the Bible plainly says or what can't otherwise be gathered by other passages that speak on the same command. Now, is keeping the Sabbath legalism? No, no. The fourth commandment says so. It says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall do your, your, your labor and the seventh day is a day of rest. That's not legalism. That's strictly what the Bible says. But nowhere does the Bible say anything about thousand paces, nor does it specify anything about dried figs or anything like that, nor does it saying that making mud like this or healing a person like this is in violation of the Sabbath. A legalist, by his legalism, will betray his innate belief that someone is saved or is sanctified by a road obedience to the letter of the law, or how about this, uh, by the overlayment of that extra-biblical command to the law. The stepbrother of legalism is called license, uh, where it's a detachment from the Bible's commands, but that's for another sermon. But legalism and legalists never have a firm category for grace. Uh, They could acknowledge that grace exists, you know, it's somewhere out there in the ether, but the question is, how do you get it? To them, it's by road obedience, and if you ever fall out of favor with someone who is a legalist, pray because there's hardly ever a chance that you will ever get back into their good graces, ever. You'll see that in verse 16 uh, in our passage tonight, where they say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Of course, in their way of understanding what keeping the Sabbath actually means, legalists use the law of God, which is a good thing, as a weapon, as though it's detached from the grace of God. They won't give latitude, They won't forgive when someone makes a mistake. They keep a record of wrong, and they hold that record of wrong over someone to control them with it until they have them make some sort of extra-biblical restitution according to those extra-biblical commands. And verse 16 tells us that they, these legalists, as you see here, they can only bring out division. This is how the Pharisees are described Uh, in this book according to this passage, as legalistic. Uh, Secondly, they're threatening. They're threatening. Now, before going on to this, something also can be said about what legalism does as it's carried on over into verse 18. Take a look at uh, your Bibles with, uh, with me. Namely, that their legalistic mind makes them suspicious and makes them mistrusting and, and distrusting. And I think this is what it was at play in verse 18 when it says that the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Because legalism naturally makes people distrust other people. That's what the, uh, the free flow of legalism is. It naturally makes people distrust and suspicious of other people. It prepares them to harbor suspicions about others. And with this suspicion, they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? You see how this sounds like an interrogation already right, uh, right here at this point. And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. 
Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. And of course, the very next verse says why they did this. Because they feared the Jews. The Jews being another stylistic way of referring to the religious elite. That's a common phrase throughout the Gospel of John. Whenever John says that, he always means the religious elite. In the Bible, leaders of the people of God are particularly the spiritual leaders of the people of God, are commonly referred to as shepherds. Shepherds are known in the Bible for being protectors. Shepherds in the Bible are known for being providers. They're also known in the Bible for being hardworking. They're known in the Bible for being diligent. They're known for keeping watch over their flock. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 4 of this very chapter, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is Day, night is coming when no one can work. Now, he's meaning something uh, a little bit different, but it's interesting that one of the very few industries that actually required uh, someone to work at night was shepherds, among a very few other industries. John Calvin says that there's four main duties of a pastor or a shepherd. Uh, Number one, he feeds the sheep. Number two, he protects them from the wolves. Number three, he corrects them unless they go astray. And number four, He goes and gets them when they go astray. But there's no instance in which shepherds should be intimidating or threatening to the sheep. Yes, perhaps they could be intimidating and threatening to the wolves, but never to the sheep. As a matter of fact, we just sang out of Psalm 23, that beautiful rendition of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Your rod and your staff comfort me. The staff was a shepherd's crook that's used doubly as a walking stick and a stick to use to lead the sheep and to guide them where to go. And this is the sheep pen. This is where you eat and things like this. The rod was a club that's used to beat and kill predators with. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But here we see the shepherds, in this passage, we see the shepherds cudgeling or threatening retribution against the people of God. They're perceived as dangerous. They're perceived as intimidating. Uh, They're bullies. And understandably, people are cautious around them lest they say something or do something that will call down retaliation, retribution. Rather than being models of godliness, models of wisdom, integrity, models of self-control, Instead, they instill terror and feed upon the fear of the people that they're supposed to lead. And this is why the parents wouldn't stand up against them. Verse 22 makes it pretty clear that they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be excommunicated. We can see that they're intimidating. They're threatening. Thirdly, they're presumptuous. They're presumptuous. In other words, they presume. That's what the word presumptuous means means. They presume to have all the knowledge that they have that they need within themselves to say that they are objectively in the right. It means that with whatever knowledge they have, they've satisfied themselves that they need very little more to go on than what they themselves already have. And their word, even though there's a lot missing, and even though it's incomplete, is final. It really is a means of self-preservation, maintaining a position of authority than anything else. It's the example here of the saying, don't confuse me with the facts, 
I've already made up my mind, if you've never heard that before. And here we can see this at play in verse 24, where for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, which we know is simply a a box-checking statement. It's not that that, that they really care about giving glory to God. It's not on their agenda to give glory to God. How do I know that? Well, if that's on their agenda to give glory to God, they wouldn't be acting the way that they would be right here. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, of course, we know that this statement could come with a follow-up question, Really? Y'all do know that he is a sinner? It seems to me that from verse 16 there was a, dis- a, a debate about this and it caused something of a, hard, a huge division. So really? You, you really do know that, uh, that this man is a sinner? You're so confident? But regardless of the fact that they kind of mask that, uh, that over or whatever, they start engaging him in what becomes a role reversal, which infuriates them. Verse uh, 26, they ask, uh, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. This is what presumptuous people do. This word for reviled is the only time that it's found in what is called Johannine literature. Okay? That is the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. That means that they uh, revile him and they make fun of him with such a seething hatred that it displays exactly what presumptuous people do. They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Which again, we can stop right there and say, no, you're not. You're not disciples of Moses. How do I know that? Well, because if you're disciples of Moses, you would know Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, which prophesies that someone is going to come, a prophet is going to come who is raised up by God, who is like Moses, and it's to him that you shall listen. That is to say, if they were Moses' disciples, they would be Jesus' disciples. So don't give me this uh, this thing about you being Moses' disciples. But going forward to verse 31, The man experiences how presumptuous they are when he gives them his observations about Jesus, which is otherwise known as this man teaching them. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of the man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And this here uh, probably exemplifies his greatest sin against them. You ready? He was teaching them. That is perhaps one of the greatest sins that you can ever commit against someone who is presumptuous. He taught them. Or to put it this way, he has the audacity to think that that he can instruct them or even challenge them because he assumes that somehow they are equals. See, presumptuous people can never countenance being taught by people who have already made up their minds that they're not going to like, that they're going to hate. They see it as an offense that this man could pull up a chair and contribute to their knowledge. Presumptuous leaders won't acknowledge when they're wrong. They won't ask questions. They won't countenance an open dialogue. And they'll grandstand themselves as those who solely harbor the truth. They won't be taught, and at worst, they can't be reasoned with. This is how the Gospel of John understands the Pharisees throughout the Gospel from this very chapter as presumptuous. 
And number four, lastly, they're self-righteous. They're self-righteous. We're moving forward a bit to verses 40 and 41, where after Jesus uh, graciously reveals himself to this man, uh, right in his excommunication, right in, as we've prayed a minute ago, in his trials and his temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil has spit him out of the, the synagogue. Here Jesus comes to the man in his excommunication. He speaks with him. He covers him with the words of life. He tells to this man that he's really the one who's basically throughout the entire chapter who really has eyes to see this whole time and that ultimately his hope isn't in a religious system that's been hijacked by wolves and that Christ is the one in whom the blind will see. And for those who think they see, it'll be shown that they're actually blind. So this is what leads into verse 40, where some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. Uh, doubtless they're offended, and they asked Jesus, Are we also blind? Now this is a revealing question to me uh, that uh, tells me something about what they think of themselves. In the original language, it's clear that the way that they intend this question to be answered is no. In other words, they look at themselves and they, they kind of like what they see. You know, they, they look at themselves, they think of themselves as competent in themselves. Um, to take Paul's line from 2 Corinthians 3, I believe, they are sufficient for these things, uh, right? They look at themselves, they, they don't really stand in any particular need. Uh, they don't really need that much forgiveness or anything like that. They essentially see themselves as ones who have achieved spiritual sight all by themselves. In other words, they don't understand themselves as spiritually blind without Christ. That's why they ask the question that they do. And it's actually this very question that not only has Jesus concluding this chapter, but also this very question generates a large portion of the dialogue that goes into chapter 10 about Jesus himself being the good shepherd. Because all spiritual leaders, and we can say, at all spirit-indwelt believers, for that matter, view themselves as nothing uh, without Christ. We know that we're blind, we know that we're pitiable, we know that we're poor, we know that we're naked without Jesus. Spiritual leaders are the ones who have a keen ear to know the voice of the Good Shepherd. We know where to go to find him, and we're able to direct others to him. We know that without the righteousness of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, we forfeit our inheritance in this age and in the age to come. And so that's what generates verse 41. So Jesus says to them, if you, that is the Pharisees, were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, it's kind of a statement of irony here. If you knew that you were outside of Christ, you'd have a heart that longs for him. You'd actually take inventory of your need for him and you would run to Christ and he would be yours and you would be his forever. This is what he means when he says that, uh, that, uh, that phrase. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. That is, because they esteem themselves so highly, they show that they have no true understanding of themselves, nor do they really care about sin because they're blind to it. Self-righteous leaders have no real sense of the need for repentance Self-righteous leaders will reject any opportunities to do so even when confronted. They think much of themselves and they think of themselves much. 
They have a sense of superiority uh, within themselves. They have a sense of confidence within themselves that their sins, no matter how obvious, no matter how great, will be absolved by their works. They lead by their office. They lead by their position and not by their example. This is the fourth way that the Pharisees are described in the Gospel of John in chapter 9 as self-righteous. Now, with everything that we've looked at, I don't think I have to mention the danger that these kinds of leaders pose to the church, both inward and outward. Uh, This kind of uh, abuse and damage that's done by leaders who are legalistic, threatening, presumptuous, and self-righteous has been incalculable to many precious people throughout the history of the church. Just about every other day, certainly every week, but just about every other, every other day, I get a news update from uh, the Christian Post. And it gives <clears throat> story after story after story after story. Uh, I almost get sick of them, and it's hard to kind of categorize them and keep them in, in, in my mind. I get so many. Uh, this pastor was arrested for a felony assault. That pastor tried to cover up abuse and it was found out. This pastor was having an affair. That church is going through an ugly split and so forth. It seems... Uh, to me, as as though it's almost an endless barrage of stories, but at the very least, I think it tells me something, and it should tell us something. It should cause us to look at the person in the mirror uh, to figure out what we need to learn and what we need to do in terms of how we can be developed in order that that wouldn't happen on account of us. 1 Peter 4, verse 17 says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I think that we can at least start to navigate Peter's challenge here in 1 Peter 4. And we can start to navigate how we see Christ here in John chapter 9 as they relate to how leaders like this have operated in abuse. And I say this thinking of two main applications uh, for us. Again, the church should be the most compassionate organization in the entire world, if for no other reason, because of our chief representative and because of our chief mandate, because of our chief representative and our mandate. And I'd like us to think about this as we close for application. Brothers and sisters, think of who owns the church. Think of who owns the church. The Lord Jesus does. The same person who met the man born blind also meets any victim of church hurt. And he meets them in a most personal way because think of who Jesus is. We've thought about it this, uh, this morning, a wonderful sermon this, uh, this morning. Think of who Jesus is. If you think about it, uh, there's no one who's gone through more church hurt than Jesus. Even if there was no abuse from the religious elite, he would still be bearing far greater humiliation than he would ever deserve. Uh, We can't lose the forest for the trees. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, We've seen the Pharisees' natural abode. Uh, Now Jesus' natural abode, if we can even say it that way, is in the heavens to do whatever he pleases. And yet he takes upon himself the form of a servant in the likeness of man, not to clean up a mess that we've made, but to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we all deserve, to bear the full weight of the wrath of his father for us 
so that we won't have to. If we approximate who he is, that he's the eternal son of God, come from a domain of holiness where righteousness dwells, he comes from the eternal estate where the glory of the triune God is constantly on full display, where he comes from is a place where even the celestial beings who serve him can't behold his face. It's not hard for us to imagine that even if Jesus were treated as a king in this world, he would still be bearing far more humiliation and suffering than the most abused person in the history of the church. And it's this Jesus, uh, who's God and man, two distinct natures in one person forever, who has put himself under the hands of these legalistic, threatening, presumptuous, and self-righteous men, and he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified by the hands of these lawless men. Church hurt hurts. But the look at our Lord, who has borne the greatest load of church hurt for us, and dare I say, by us, so that we would be under the economy of grace instead of under the wrath of God. This is the Lord Jesus, who has united himself to you, You are in union with Jesus Christ, the one who's endured even this for us. Secondly, because Jesus has been under this kind of church hurt, we know that all the children of God are constantly held by the hands of the chief shepherd. All of us are always constantly held by the chief hands of of, of the chief shepherd. And as we've said before, no one really gets away with this. The Pharisees here didn't, uh, and they won't. Uh, disunited to Jesus, not united to Jesus. If they remained uh, disunited to Jesus in this life, they will in the age to come. Disunited to Jesus, they endure punishment now and they will see Jesus, the one whom they have pierced on the last day. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus and the books will be opened to the one who sees all things. Ultimately, no one gets away with it which means that neither does your hurt. Uh, Your hurt doesn't escape his notice either. Uh, Just as he comes to this man here, who's a microcosm of the Christian life, in a similar way, he has full access to you. And as we will see in the following sermon in John chapter 10, you have full access to him as well, even and especially in our hurt and our suffering, and most personally, in our death. So all the children of God are constantly held by the hands of the chief shepherd. Thirdly, uh, and I'll close with, uh, with this. Uh, lastly, if you experience mistreatment, point it out. If you experience mistreatment, point it out. The church has a mechanism for people being mistreated. In Matthew 18, verse 15 is, and following are your go-to verses for it. If you think you've been mistreated, you have every right to explore that keeping that very passage in mind. And if anyone denies you that right, that should be pointed out as well. And of course, we do this in stages, as Matthew 18 tells us to do. We go to them first to redress the issue and then bring others uh, with, and then through the mechanism of the session to the church. And then we do this in balance as well. It could be the case that you were mistreated. It could also be the case that sometimes you feel mistreated uh, when really all you have been is rebuked, which isn't actual mistreatment. Sometimes people just have to say hard things. Uh, One of the ways to discern between the two is whether or not it's done in truth and love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, and whether or not the offense is real, 
not perceived and whether it's enough to warrant a discussion. Uh, then I suppose when you're in the discussion, it's a, it's, it's a Romans 12.10 competition, okay? Uh, look that up uh, when, when you get a chance. That is, uh, the Romans 12 verse, uh, verse 10 competition, you guys are in competition with, uh, with one another at the very discussion table. How can I love my brother with brotherly affection more? How can I outdo one another with, when showing honor? I bet you I can outdo that guy, and the guy's probably thinking the same thing. That's what you do at the discussion table. That's what I like to call the Romans 12.10 competition. To see who, who can love each other more, who can honor, honor each other more, who can outdo one another in showing honor more. Discipline builds up. It's led by godly wisdom. On the other hand, mistreatment tears down. It seeks its own way. It seeks its own glory, its own prestige. Those who discipline try to protect the other, and those who mistreat try to protect themselves. Brothers and sisters, the church should be the most compassionate place in the entire world. Uh, Don't let the person who mistreats someone continue in sin, and don't let people suffer in sin. When When mistreatment happens, call it out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus.